All right, good morning, Three Circle. I want to welcome all of our campuses right now. We got Thomasville, Robertsdale joining us today, Midtown. Been in Daphne, we're here at Fairhope, and also all those online. We're going to continue today our series on the book of First Peter called Storm Shelter. Now, Peter wrote this letter too, because when you when you study your Bible, you need to know that there's always what we call an original audience, and then there's all of us. The original audience for the letter of First Peter was the church in and around Rome. Now, what was going on? Why did Peter write this letter? Well, he was being a weatherman, basically. He was letting the church know that they were in the line of a massive storm. They were in the path of a deadly hurricane, and we've named that hurricane Hurricane Nero. Nero was on its way. And what happened, what happened to cause all of this is that Nero had become the leader of Rome, very powerful position since Rome was the empire across the earth, and he decided that, well, like a lot of dictators do, that he wanted to build some buildings in his image. Nero was a bad combination. You don't want to see this in a leader. He was sadistic, cruel, all of that, and also crazy. You put those two together, you end up with people like Hitler and Stalin and, well, our guy Nero here. Nero decided he wanted to build buildings. The problem was Rome didn't have any open lots. There was nowhere to build. There was nowhere to go. And so he decided, well, to make some room for me to build my stuff, I'll just burn some some stuff in Rome. The problem is when he lit the fires, he couldn't control the fire. And instead of burning part of Rome, he burned most of Rome. And when he burned most of Rome, that ended up messing things up. He burned things that people loved. People lost their lives. It was a massive calamity and disaster. And word started getting around that Nero had done this. And the population started to turn against him. So he had a PR battle on his hands. And he figured out a way, masterfully, by the way, to get himself out from under the heat of this situation no pun intended. How would he handle the fact that he had burned most of Rome? Well, he came up with a story that he, in fact, did not burn it. And it was an easy thing for him to blame it on this group of people that, because we're looking at about 70 AD when this happened, this group of people that over the past 40-something years, they've been growing in influence in the empire of Rome. They have these little ecclesias in every town, and it's called the church. These Christians have already been weird to the Romans. They, they don't do life like the Romans. They, they have a different view of sexuality than the Romans do. They marry one person and stay married to them, and they raise their families, and they, have, they value uh, uh, men and women, and they value children, and they also do weird stuff. Someone said they drink blood and eat flesh and all this weird stuff, and we call it communion. The Romans thought it was weird, and, and so on and on and on it goes. So it's an easy jump for Nero to come out and say, hey, I'm like you. I'm a Roman. I live like you. I'm sexually promiscuous like you are. I drink and eat like you do. I believe in a hundred little gods like you do. The weirdos are the Christians. And they obviously hate Rome. They tell everybody they hate Rome. They tell, tell us that our kingdom isn't the kingdom. There's another kingdom. They believe their guys survived a crucifixion. We know that's impossible. And so he said, they're the ones that burn Rome, not me. And they believed it. The population, it was an easy jump. The population thought, yeah, I mean, he went on Facebook, he went on the right news channels, he got a podcast going, and everybody said, yeah, that must be the truth. And they turned on the Christians. And Nero used that as an opportunity to fully unleash his sadistic nature on the church. And he tortured and he captured, and it ended up being one of the worst moments in history for the church. Famously, he would light living Christians on fire as a torch to light his gardens. Now, Peter is writing this letter while Rome is still smoking. 
And Nero is getting ready to unleash all this, and he can see it coming. And Peter writes to warn them, this is coming. It reminds me of a big storm that hit our area. If you live in the Gulf Coast and you've lived here long, you mark your life, if you grew up here like I did, you mark your life by hurricanes a little bit, don't you? We kind of know, hey, that's about when that hurricane hit. And a big one that I grew up hearing about, I, I was in the house when it happened. I just don't remember it. It was Hurricane Frederick. How many of you have ever heard of Hurricane Frederick? How many of you lived through it? You actually do remember the storm. Hurricane Frederick looked like this in the Gulf of Mexico, a massive storm, still one of the most powerful storms to ever hit the United States and this area for sure. The, the eye of the storm literally went up Mobile Bay, so it devastated uh, Mobile, the Baldwin County areas, and South Mississippi where my family lived. It was so bad, my family, so at the time, my, my mom and dad would probably have been late, like 19, and they had a mobile home about a quarter of a mile from my grandparents' house, and I grew up hearing the stories that they, they sheltered in my grandfather's brick home. And so they were hearing noises all night. And when the eye of the storm passed over, they go out and they see pieces of their mobile home has flown a quarter of a mile into his backyard and into a pond that they had on the property. And can you imagine being a, a young man going, there's my couch. That's not good. It was bad. It was a horrible storm. Here is what some of the damage looked like down on the beaches. This was, this was the picture across Dolphin Island across Gulf Shores when the storm hit. Here's one of my, one of my favorites, though, that I uncovered. Uh, this is the Fairhope Pharmacy. And so some of you are in Fairhope, but some of you have seen that before. It's still there, and it's owned by the, the Barnhill family. Now, I know that man standing there is Ben Barnhill. He passed away a few years ago. His brother is one of my greatest friends, uh, Wendell Barnhill. And Mr. Wendell and his wife, Charlotte, tell me the stories about that night. You can see all the windows are blown out. So here's how it went. Mr. Wendell and his brother, uh, Ben, hilarious, legendary guys in our area, they have their wives, and they decided we're going to shelter at the pharmacy because there's a safe room in there. So the storm's getting bad, and the guys actually decide they're going to go into the safe room. And they look out there, and, I mean, it's starting to get bad. Frederick is getting bad, and the wives are looking at cards. They're in the card section in the pharmacy looking at cards. And Mr. Wendell's got one of those cool old-timey southern accents. And so his wife, Charlotte, but he does not say Charlotte. He says Charlotte. You know what I'm saying? He loses that R. And he's telling me the story the other day over coffee. And he said, Chris, I looked out there and I said, Charlotte, darling, come on into the safe room. And evidently she looked up and said, I'm just looking at cards. And about that time, a, a traffic light flew off of the lines out in the street and flew into the pharmacy through the windows, literally exploding all the windows. And it's, that's, that's when all the ladies got into the safe room. That's what he said. He said, and Charlotte came on into the safe room, all right? It was a night that no one will ever forget. It was a night to remember. But here's the difference. We talked in week one about the great Galveston, Texas hurricane and the massive loss of life. Fast forward to 1979, and Frederick was bad, but the loss of life was minuscule compared to. Now, we lost stuff, but not as many human lives. What's the difference? Because everybody knew Frederick was coming. No one was surprised. People could shelter. People could evacuate. People were ready. And that's what Peter's trying to do like any good shepherd would. Peter's trying to get the church ready. He's like, Nero's coming. Don't be caught off guard. You need to be prepared. And last week we learned that he said, hey, Nero can take everything you have, but there's three things that, that are going to be your shelter that he can't take. He can take your homes, your freedom, even your life. But Nero cannot take <clears throat> the character of God, the promises of God, right? And your identity in Christ. That's three things that he can't take. Amen. 
This means for your storms you face, cancer may take everything you have. Cancer could take your dignity. Cancer could eventually take your life. Cancer can make life real hard on you. Cancer cannot touch, cannot take the character of God, the promises of God, and your identity in Christ. Whatever's happened to you relationally, whatever your past is, it has affected your life. I get it. It's real. It cannot touch the character of God, the promises of God, and your identity in Christ. That's your storm shelter. Amen, church? That's it. So he said, I got three people excited. I got work to do, but we're going to get there, all right? But I can tell that all of our campuses, I can hear it. All you guys in Robertsdale and Thomasville, you're ready to go. Okay. So as we look at this today, Peter's going to move forward to teach us more. And he's going to teach us that God will sometimes calm the storm, but he always calms his child. I've learned that in my life. Sometimes he calms the storm, but most of the time, he's going to calm me while I'm in the storm. He's going to help me. He's going to help you get through your storm. And Peter is clear with the church that they're not going to get out of the way of the storm. It's coming. No doubt. Nero's not just going to go away. Nero's, Nero's not going to make an easterly turn and go out into the Atlantic and die. For those of you that know your hurricanes. For those of you who have moved here from Ohio in a few years, you will get what I just said. Let's go. 1 Peter 1.13. He says, therefore, so that, that word's telling you he's done with that first section now. He's teaching us something new today. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, now, there's a lot going on in what we just read. And what I want to show you is that if you look at this verse wrong, and many of us do, you will see that it's providing you a choice that you need to choose between one or the other. There's two concepts here that are held together by a phrase, and it's called sober-minded. Sober-minded sits between prepare your mind for action, and on the other side of it, set your hope on something that's going to happen. He says prepare for something that's about to happen now. It's on top of you. But also set your hope on something that's out there somewhere. And if you look at this wrong, and, and it's where we make the mistake, sometimes we'll go, I'm going to be one or the other. But he's saying to the church, when the storm hits, you need to be both. This is not a dichotomy to choose from. It is a tension to live within. Does that make sense? And so what I want to show you is what he means by sober-minded, the, the word holding the whole thing together. He says being sober-minded. It means we must be present now while being hopeful for then. Write that down, would you? The guys will put it on the screen. We must be present now while we are being hopeful for then. You don't choose between the two. Let me tell you what I mean. When I was a kid, there was a certain candy that I liked a lot. But you had to be careful with this candy. Because if you put this candy in your mouth and you got a little impatient from just letting it dissolve and enjoy it, you got a little impatient and you decided to bite into it, it would rip fillings out of your teeth. And if you got a little too aggressive, it would rip the teeth out of your mouth. And when I show you this candy, many of you are going to know what I mean immediately. Do you remember these guys right here? Hmm? Some of you is traumatic because right now you're like, dude, I, I'm missing teeth right now because when I was 14 drinking a Coke at the baseball park and I had forgot, I had that now and later, and uh, I was trying to impress my girlfriend, I was chomping on that thing, and there it went, two teeth, gone, boom, out, of, out. Now and later, someone told me earlier, they're like, dude, 
Today changed my life, and I'll tell you why. Because all my life, I thought they were annihilators. I've never known that candy I ate was a now and later. And I thought to myself, well, now my ministry is finally having an impact, finally, <laughs> after all these years. Now and later, but I want, I want you to, I, I gave you this picture because I want you to have this concept driven into your mind. Christians have to be both. We are now and later people. We are now and later people. Christians must live the tension. When the storm hits, I've got to be in the storm knowing the storm isn't going to last forever. I've got to live out the storm knowing that the storm's not actually in control. <clears throat> this is so important for us. Now, why is this important? Well, if I become too now oriented, let me tell you what that leads to. If you forget later and you just focus on now, then when storms hit, they are devastating. More so than they have to be. Because if you don't have perspective of later, then now's all you got. The reason the Roman Empire was so devastated when Rome burned is that's all they had. That was heaven to them. That was the most important thing. Rome was the thing. If all you have is now, and now gets impacted, you're devastated. You don't have a later perspective. If you are overly now-oriented, here's some symptoms. You'll be very materialistic. It's all about what kind of house can I live in? Because now, it's now. It's all about how much money can I get now? How comfortable can I be now? You get very focused on now. You will work. You'll become idolatrous. Things become idols in your life because you don't have a later perspective. Every doctor's visit is scary, scary because it's so now driven. Okay. But you can also fall in the ditch of being later oriented. If you're too later oriented, you end up lazy in the now and you begin to treat things like it doesn't matter right now. I'll give you an example. Some people get so later oriented, they decide the world's evil, this world's terrible, all we need to do is survive to get to the later. So they get 40 or 50 people, they get on the side of a mountain, build a fence, and become weirdos. It's called cults, right? Compounds. That's what happens when you're overly later oriented. It's those people that are like, you know what? I'm just waiting on heaven. Heaven's coming. I don't really care if people starve and that's not my problem. I'm going to heaven one day. Yeah, but you're here now. And so the Bible, what he says to these Christians is he says, two things have to happen simultaneously. You need to set your mind for action. In other words, get ready. Storm's coming and you need to be prepared. You're going to go through this storm. But at the same time, keep the perspective of later. He says, I want you to remember the storm's not going to be forever and Nero actually isn't the boss. He thinks he is. And we are now and later people. And when you pull those two together, it's very powerful. Because now I can face storms. And I, can, and I can go through them and be very present and conduct myself in a way that glorifies God and have joy because my life isn't shattered every time things don't go the way I want them to. Because I'm not just a now person. I'm a later person too. And when things don't go the way I hope they would or my dreams don't come true, I go, it's okay. It's okay, I can get through this because... I'm not just a now person, I'm a later person. And I don't live on the side of a hill in a compound and be a weirdo because I'm also a now person. Okay, you see the difference. Some of you are like, well, you don't live on the side of a mountain. So Christians are now and later people. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. He goes on, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who 
called you as holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he says, now, I want you to be a now and later person. And as the storm hits, he's telling the church and telling us, you need, you need kind of a model. You need to act like something. He says here, don't be conformed. So the first thing I want you to see here is Peter's making a point here. We are all conformist. Those of us who think we're non-conformist in the room, I promise you, I can prove that we are all at some level conformist. Human beings conform at some level. I'll tell you why. Because, let me just prove it to you. you. Most of you in this room right now are not wearing massive uh, bell-bottom jeans, okay? And uh, you, you don't have, um, let's say, a peace sign t-shirt that you're wearing everywhere you go. Why? Because that, that was cool in the 70s, but probably not now. Like, you wear what everybody's wearing right now for the most part. You're kind of in with the styles that's going on. Even those who are like, I don't care what anybody thinks. Yeah, you do, because you don't dress like you did 50 years ago. Probably. Well, some of you might, but it's just because it came back in style. I prove this to you. My dad, and I, I love my dad. He's great. He's a non, he would say he's a nonconformist, right? But I've looked at his pictures. And at 18 and 19 years old, my dad looked like he was part of Credence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> I want to know, have you ever? You know, that's him. He looked like those guys. He's got the long hair. He's got the bell bottoms, man. He's got the whole 70s look. And you can flip through the album because it's got the years up top, 1979. And then you get to 1982 and suddenly Magnum P.I. shows up. Wait, is that the same guy? I thought I had the Fogarty brothers from Credence Clearwater Revival. I turned three years. I got Tom Selleck looking at me. All of a sudden, his hair is short. He's got a Hawaiian shirt unbuttoned to about right here. Got a little gold chain and a mustache. I'll tell you what happened. He was dating my mama, and she thought, back in the 70s, she said, Woo, I like Credence Clearwater Revival, and Daddy looked like that. And then Magnum P.I. came on the TV, and he heard her one day say, Ooh, Tom Selleck. And suddenly, Daddy got a haircut and grew a mustache. That's what happened. You want to know why? Because humans conform, don't we? Oh, we conform. And so Peter just owns it, and he says, Look, you are a conformist. You're a conformist. So the choice is not, are you going to conform? The choice is, to what will you conform? What will model you? What will you allow to shape you? What mold are you going to pour yourself into? And to that, he gives us direction. He says, you must imitate your father. You got a daddy, act like it. Act like him. But now, that statement in and of itself creates a theological conundrum for us, doesn't it? Because my Bible tells me that God is so high that I can't even comprehend him. He's so far beyond anything that my mind can even conceive. I can't relate to the living, holy God who angels shudder in his presence and there's angels floating in his presence for eternity just saying over and over, holy, 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 holy. That, I, I can't, thunder and lightning, Isaiah says, around his throne that you can't even look upon. How am I supposed to copy that? And I would say, you're right, except for one thing chilly night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and a baby started crying and God became a man and he took off the table for all of us not knowing who he was you're right we could have never known him 
the way we do now. But now we know exactly what he's like when he talks. What would it be like if God could laugh? We know. What would, it, what would make God angry? We know. Does God have friends? We know. Who would he choose if he was choosing some friends? We know. What would he do with his time? We know. How would he treat people who are down and out? We know. How would he treat a person, I don't know, who's uh, sexually deviant? We know. What about someone who's rich but has used people to get their riches? We know. What would he do with proud religious people? We saw it. What would he do when he's falsely accused? How would he treat his friend who's going to turn his back on him? What would he do when he's getting beat up and tortured? How would he handle that? What would it look like if, well, he bled? We know. We've watched him do it all. We watched God climb up a hill. We watched him die. We watched him breathe his last breath. So Peter confidently can't say, now be like him. Act like him. When the storm hits and Nero is blowing strong, guys, act like Jesus. Be like Jesus, right? Follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. Christians are called to imitate their father. That's what we're supposed to do. One of my favorite pictures of my oldest son, Gabe, there's a picture of me. We were in Florida, and I am on my computer working, and I'm not aware he's scooted up next to me, and he's got his little chair. We called him Baby Gabe then. Sweet Baby Gabe. Maybe I should start calling him that again. I think I will. <laughs> Baby Gabe. And he's sitting here next to me, and he's looking up at me, and he's got his little fake computer, and he's trying to sit just like me. He's trying to act like me because he's just a kid imitating his dad. And I will often say, I'll say, you know, you always see yourself and your kids. And when my kids are courageous and doing the right thing and all that, I think, man, boy, imitating their dad. And then when it gets a little sideways, I'm like, there's their mom again. There's... <laughs> you know that's not true. No, no, no. When my kids are at their best, they're imitating their mother. And when there's issues, it's me. I'm looking in a mirror. But here's the deal. We all know that kids imitate their parents, right? There's a level of imitation that's just natural. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, just like kids, that's what he says, be like a kid. Learn who your father is, that's through Jesus, and imitate him. You're not a rudderless ship. You've got a model. Be like him. Act like him. Operate like him. And he says here that we must conduct ourselves this way. We must um, be holy as he is holy. And what I want you to understand is our conduct in our storms is an indicator of the condition of our hearts. It's an indicator. On my vehicles <coughs> that we have, there's this thing. It's got a little orange, normally, line on it. And on one side is an F, and the other side is an E, right? I've had to explain this to people in my family. That there's a way to move that needle over. You want it closer to the F, Right? And I got certain family members who uh, believe that the correct place for it to be is actually below the E. Like if the E's here, it's cool to leave it here. You know what I'm saying? So when I've gotten in cars before and somehow it works out to where I get in the car, that it's going to take a miracle for me to get to, the, to a gas station. And it normally doesn't hit me. I get in the car, I start going on the road. About a quarter mile down the road, I look and... I can't see that it's so far between the E and where that dial is that I begin to pray. I turn everything off that could use fuel, and I begin to say, Lord, in Jesus' name, 
But that thing is not the gas tank, is it? It's not the gas tank. There's no gas where that needle is. That needle's way up here in my dashboard, and it's telling me something that's going on deeper underneath the surface of that car. It's telling me what's in the tank or what's not in the tank. It's an indicator. And the Bible's teaching us our conduct, we know as gospel people, our conduct does not make us saved. It's not the gas tank, but it is the indicator of what's going on inside the motor and in the engine. It's telling you what's going on, your conduct, the way you act, the way you live. And Peter tells us this here. Look, 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, let's look back at that and, and, and look what he says. He says, if you call on him as your father, conduct yourselves with fear. You see, it's the gas tank. What's really in the tank is, do you really... Are you really a child of God? And the thing that's going to kind of show that is the gas needle. Conduct yourselves. And interestingly enough, he says here, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, wait a minute. I thought that the New Testament taught me over and over again that I'm not supposed to be afraid. Right? I mean, don't we say around here as a gospel church, we'll say that the most repeated phrase in the New Testament is some form of don't fear. Fear not. Don't be afraid. So then why, when the church is facing its most crucial moment, cat five hurricane coming right at you, why does Peter say, be afraid? I would think he'd say, don't you be afraid of Nero. Be courageous. He says, be afraid. He says, conduct yourselves in fear. What does he mean? Well, I promise you he is not telling the church to be afraid of Nero. He's not telling, we know that. We look at the Bible and we know the Bible commentates on itself. What does the Bible, in fact, what's the only thing the Bible tells you you should fear? The Lord. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that we must choose to fear God or the storm. We must make that choice. We're either going to, you're going to fear the storm or you're going to fear the Lord. And those two fears are different things. Too many of us fear the storms. We live in fear. And living in fear of the wrong thing will ruin you, man. And man, I can, can I just be honest? I can live in fear. We live in a time, uh, this, this is going to sound like just whining, okay? I don't mean to. Y'all have your thing. But I, you know, when you're a pastor of a church, there's kind of a public nature to it, right? And so every, every time I preach, that stuff lives forever. And now we live in a world where everybody, man, it's just unbelievable, like, looking at everything everybody says and all that. And if I'm not careful, I'll live in fear. I'll be like, man, I got, everything's got to be just right. There's so many people, and they love to do and you, They love to tear this down. They love to go after that. That's, that's the world we live in. And you start living like that, it's not good. And I love that Peter's looking at the church, and he's saying, you will be tempted to be afraid of Nero. He's a scary guy. And if you fear him, it's going to make you a now and not a later person. And you are going to make decisions you're going to regret. <clears throat> you're not going to live in boldness and enjoy in the middle of that storm. So you need to fear the Lord, not the storm, not Nero. 
Proverbs 9.10 says this about the fear of the Lord. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That's how important the fear of the Lord is. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? When he says to live our lives in fear, he's saying we need to live our lives in fear as well. Not fear of the storm, fear of God. But the Bible doesn't mean that you're to be scared of God. I don't want my kids scared of me. The only time I've wanted my kids to be scared of me, and it's just my boys, is they're always starting fights with me. So there came a time in my life where I would walk into my kitchen and, and a human being would try to fight me. And it's my boys. And it's like they go to the gym, they work out, and as they get stronger, they think, and I'm going to try it out on him. Let's see how it works. So it's in those moments that daddy's got to rule to roost because the little lion cubs are trying to take over. You know what I mean? And you got to stand your ground. I had an older gentleman tell me one time, he said, if you're weak, don't let them know it. Don't let them know it. And if they ever do get you, you don't let you go down fighting. You know what I mean? So, so far, so good. But I'm scared. I'm scared they're going to realize they could gang up on me, okay? So I want a little fear there. But, but I don't want my kids afraid of me, right? But I do need them to respect me. And I need them to obey me. That's it. That's what the Bible's saying. Peter's saying you need to walk in fear of the Lord because if you fear him and you stand in awe of him, it will lead you to obey him, and that is crucial. So the fear of the Lord is a respect for God that leads us to obedience. It's why Jesus said in the New Testament, he said, if you love me, you will what? Do y'all remember what he said? He said, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll follow my commands. He connects the two. The indicator light is your obedience. And so he's telling the church, you can't use the storm as an excuse to stop acting like Jesus. You can't use what's going on and go, well, I was going through a tough time there. So I came off the rails. Peter said, no, no, no. When the storm hits, I want you more than ever to focus on Jesus and conduct yourself in that way. And he says here in verse 21 that it's through Jesus that we are believers in God. That's a gospel statement in the middle of all this. He reminds them. Why would he tell the early church to remember that it's only through Jesus that they're saved? Because that's one of the big attacks on them right now. The Romans are trying to tell them, hey, you can, you can worship a lot of different gods. You guys are weirdos. There's not just one God. How, how can you say there's only one God? How can you say there's only one way to heaven? Sound, does it sound reminiscent at all? Time is a circle. It just keeps repeating itself. So... The only way to salvation, according to Peter here, is Jesus. The only way. Folks, there is no other way. And, and I always, when we come to something like this where he says it's through Jesus that we're made believers in God, I have to remind you because we're in the South, we're in this place where we're, we're good people, right? We're good, good people. There's other places in the world that might not have the humidity and mosquitoes we have, but we're good people here. Good Southern people, Right? I'm going to tell you right now, being honest with you, there'll be a lot of good southern people not in heaven. Because if good was the standard, no need for a cross, no need for a savior, no need for an empty tomb, no need for all that. But there is not one of us righteous, no, not one. We needed Jesus. I need Jesus. 
Jesus is the only way I'm getting to heaven, the only way you are. And if you're here today and you've got this new age, new look at life, and you're like, I'm going to be a good person. I am philanthropic. I give my money away. I care about people. I'm a good person. I'm telling you, well done. If that was the standard, no need for Jesus. But you need Jesus. And Peter says there's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus. It's through him, verse 21, we are believers in God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it's by grace we've been saved through faith. It is not your doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Here's what you're not going to hear. When you get to heaven, you're going to hear a lot of things. You're going to hear a lot of things in heaven. I think you're going to hear the song only imagine because I'm pretty sure that one dropped right out of heaven. I just think so. We're going to get there and there's going to be the the uh, Mercy Me guys, and they're like, yep, yep, we knew it. They want to see so you come in, we're all singing the song, surrounded by his glory, and we'll be like, of course. But one thing you're not going to hear is, look what I've done. It won't be a bunch of people going, we made it. Look what we did. Look at this. You're not going to hear this. Look at all, all that work we did. Look, it paid off. We're not going to brag to each other. We're not going to high-five in a way that says, look what we've done, like the end of a ball game that we just won. Oh, we may high-five. We're going to be looking at each other going, can you believe this? Can you believe this? Look what he has done for us. He, he meant every word. This is a dark place. This is a dark place sometimes. And we're going to get to heaven and C.S. Lewis said, we're going to be blown away. And in a moment, this world and all of its pain will disappear. And that was the promise for that church. That was their promise. That church is going to lose their lives. And Peter, as a pastor, says to them, there is something for you to hope for. Nero may take your life. But he can't touch that. He can't touch that. And we're not going to brag. We're just going to be grateful. We're going to be grateful for what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to brag that he did tell the truth and he did to everything that he promised he would. 1 Peter 1, 22 to 23 finishes it out for us today. He says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. I just love this because Peter realizes they're going to go through a storm and we are too. And he says, when the storm hits, remember you belong to Jesus. You got to conduct yourself like you belong to Jesus. But I love the end. He says, but don't do it alone. You're not alone. He says, love one another earnestly. What he's saying is community is vital to storm survival. The only thing worse than going through a Cat 5 hurricane would be if you had to do it alone. There's something about someone being with you, right? There's something about having someone to look at and go, boy, this is bad, isn't it? When it's getting bad outside and trees are hitting the ground and wind's blowing and roofs are blowing off, cats are flying by the window. It's good to have somebody to go, whoo, we're going to get through this, right? Think about it. Nero was bad on the church, man. But I got to believe that, that when he would grab them and take them to the arenas, that the only thing that would help sometimes would be able to grab the hand of their brother and go, hey, we, we are going in there. We. We're facing this. 
as a pastor, so many times I've been able to hold the hand of somebody in a hospital room. It's an unbelievable honor. And say, we are with you. We're with you. We need each other, don't we? That's what this is saying, man. And so today as we, as we face our own storms, oh, two things. Choose who you're going to fear. It matters. Fear God, not Nero. Fear God, not your storm. And then let's love each other. Let's love each other. We need each other. Support each other. Encourage one another. We're going to face some storms, but God's going to be faithful. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Would you drive it into our hearts? In your name we pray. Amen.